Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the New Testament, we find an individual mentioned three times. The first time is in Colossians chapter 4, in which Paul writes, Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. And then in Philemon, uh, verses 23 and 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. But it is the third mention for which this person, I think, is best known. It is here in our text, 2 Timothy 4, verse number 10. Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Over the centuries, Demas has come to represent those who have left the ministry and perhaps even the faith. You will notice that Luke and Demas are mentioned in all three passages, but the circumstances have changed. So if you look at verse number 11 here in 2 Timothy 4, only Luke is with me. Today we bring to a close our series on why it is so hard to believe in today's world. And I want us to consider the reality of people leaving the Christian faith. So I've mentioned before, uh, my sermons don't have footnotes or endnotes, so let me put it up front. Uh, Oz Guinness's latest book, Fool's Talk, has been extremely helpful. Um, and just Oz in general has really influenced much of my thinking over the years. As we have seen, the modern age is the background against which we all came into this world. And the Enlightenment has profoundly, if not fundamentally, changed the way that people think. Among the factors that have brought about these changes are the rapid and brilliant rise of, tech, of science and technology, and then the sense of time as progress. We take this for granted, uh, but this is the way that people think now in the modern age. And so after the emergence of such thinking, and as a result of such thinking, we can hear time and time again, one can no longer believe, and then you fill in the blank. One of the marks of the uh, modern age is a breaking with the past. Um, that what is in the past is, is seen as inferior, and what is seen as present as superior, and so we go with that and ignore the past. It's expressed in different ways, but for our purposes, at least in this series, it is the supposed triumph of reason over faith. That in the past people were governed by faith, and now we have advanced, and now we are governed by reason. There are those who put their faith in technology. And if you do that, then you cannot afford to be a minute behind. And so whatever is the latest, the newest, the greatest, must be newer and truer. Again, uh, quoting C.S. Lewis and others, refers to such people as chronological snobs and techno-idolaters. It is C.S. Lewis who calls this attitude of rejecting the past as chronological snobbery. G.K. Chesterton, who is brilliant in his writing, writes of such an attitude. An imbecile habit has arisen in modern controversy of saying that such and such a creed can be held in one age but cannot be held in another. Some dogma, we are told, was credible in the 12th century but is not in the 20th. You might as well say that a certain philosophy can be believed on Mondays but cannot be believed on Tuesdays. What a man can believe depends upon his philosophy, not upon his clock or the century. 
but due to scientific and technological progress, this has become the model for what it means to be human. That is, that we are always seen as progressing. Faith is automatically seen as retrograde. It's something of the past, and therefore it is something to be jettisoned and left behind. By the way, if we're thinking at all, when we hear this, we should immediately become suspicious. Because if you read the Old Testament prophets, if you could somehow boil their message down to one word, it would be the word return. That is, go back. Um, in, the words, or in the ears of secular progressive, any call to return is seen as reactionary. But we shouldn't be surprised because the prophets were seen as reactionary in their day, and so they were rejected. We need to understand that the church can only advance by going back first. The prophet's call to return is actually the first step toward real progress. When Jesus came into the world, the first recorded message we have is him saying, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we need to understand that returning and repentance are anything but retrograde. retrograde. So, if this is the case, then why is it that one, in fact, could drift from the faith or leave the Christian faith? I think we should begin by, by acknowledging that it is usually the end product, not the goal. A person doesn't say, you know, I think I want to drift away from the Christian faith or I want to leave the Christian faith. That may be the end result, um, but that isn't the goal at the beginning. Following the lead of Oz Guinness in this matter, I would suggest that there are four steps that can result in one becoming a demus, if you wish, that is, leaving the Christian faith. The first step, step one, is assumption. This is a crucial step, and it is taken when some aspect of the modern world, or modern thought, is seen not only as significant, and therefore we should acknowledge it as true, but it comes to be assumed to be superior to what Christians know or do. It is assumed to be true. This is the first step. Uh, Guinness gives the example of Rudolf Bultmann, who was a liberal Protestant in the beginning of the 20th century. He held that modern people cannot use electric lights and radio or call on medicine in time of illness and at the same time believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. In other words, if you use electricity, if you use the radio, and let's advance it, if you use the TV, if you use the internet, if you use any type of modern technology, how could you possibly believe in a world of spirits and miracles? What Bultmann does in the first part, I think, is correct. He describes that the scientific worldview leads to skepticism. That's what this whole series is about. As science and technology have advanced, we find it more and more difficult to believe. But then where he goes wrong is he makes the judgment that the modern world makes the New Testament world absolutely impossible. You can't have spirits. You can't have miracles. We know that because we are in the modern world. What Bultmann and many have done is confuse description and judgment. And in the process, a new authority emerges without people even realizing it. The description is accurate, and that, again, is why we're doing this series. In the modern world, it is more difficult to believe. But the judgment is wrong. It is not that we should not, or that these things are not possible. How can you have the supernatural? 
Some would ask, how can you disagree with authority? How can you disagree with the authority of the judgment that these things are, in fact, impossible? After all, if you remember from the Enlightenment, we hear the words, one can no longer believe. As a result, this judgment is not questioned at all. This is one of the great ironies of the modern world, um, that even relativism, for example, is not seen as relative. Um, Those who reject anything as absolute, that is, in fact, an absolute. In the same way, people have this judgment on the past, but that judgment itself is not called into question, or it's not even possible to call that into question. It is simply assumed to be true. It measures everything rather than being weighed and measured itself. It becomes a standard for thinking. This is the way a good, rational, modern person should think. In the modern world, there is an obsession with numbers. It is the universal language, after all. And in such a climate, polls and their data are, in fact, definitive. Considerations of truth and falsehood, right and wrong, wise and foolish, must give way to statistics. No offense, Dave. To opinion surveys and to pie charts. And what we find is, whatever the issue is, it becomes normalized. This is what the majority of people think. And then the government says, this is, in fact, what will be legalized. So we begin with assumption. But the next step follows, I think, logically, and that is abandonment. Everything that does not fit in with the new assumptions of the modern world is either cut out deliberately or slowly abandoned to neglect. Just This is something that we just don't talk about anymore. And in the process, the removal of these offending assumptions becomes permanent. The assumption is that something modern is true and proper. And therefore, anything in tradition, that is, that came before, must go. Traditional views are seen as philosophically impossible. They're unfashionable. They're politically incorrect. And so they must go. Truth and doctrine, once regarded as a matter of courage and conviction, come now to be seen as arrogant and exclusive, judgmental, intolerant, and even hate-filled. Simply put, something modern is assumed and something traditional is abandoned. Step one, step two. Step three is adaptation, and it follows the second as the second follows the first. Something new is assumed, Something old is abandoned. What remains is, in fact, adapted. In other words, whatever remains of traditional beliefs and practices, because I think it's impossible to get rid of everything, so that you still have these remnants hanging around, they are altered to fit comfortably with the new set of assumptions and the unspoken worldview behind it. The direction of adaptation is determined, in fact, by the new assumptions. So, if your assumptions are secularist, then we should not be surprised if what remains of the Christian faith in your life, it becomes quite secular. And you could just go on and on about the list. If it is Marxist, then your thinking will become Marxist. If capitalist, capitalist. If psychotherapeutic, um, then that's the route that you will go. It goes on and on and on. Pascal wrote centuries ago, if we submit everything to reason... Our religion will have no mysterious and supernatural element. If we offend the principles of reason, our religion will be absurd and ridiculous. 
In other words, with the emergence of what is called the age of reason, reason suddenly is put at the top and everything must be adapted to that or in fact jettisoned. And if it doesn't make sense, and that's why Boltmann says, you know, we have electricity, we have radios, we can't possibly, cannot possibly believe in the supernatural. Miracles? Simply not possible. The fourth and final step is assimilation. It is, in fact, the logical culmination of the first three steps. Something modern is assumed. As a consequence, something traditional is abandoned. Everything else is adapted. And all that remains, what is left over of Christian assumptions, are to be absorbed into modern ones. They are to be assimilated completely. And there are different ways that this is expressed, being innovative, thinking outside the box, however you want to put it. If people really believe that whatever is emerging, whatever is new, whatever is coming next, must automatically improve the present, then the Christian faith must, in fact, assimilate. It must adapt, but it must also assimilate. There's little one can do to stop the process. But we can point firmly to the fact that when they have given up the sole authority, the sole standard by which they could assess anything as to whether or not it is right or wrong, then they have condemned themselves to failure and they have left the faith. It begins with assumptions and then abandonment, adaptation, and then finally assimilation. When we began this series, we asked the question, what is the gospel? The message of Jesus is called gospel or good news. But why is it news and why is it good news? What is the good news that Jesus himself announced and that he commissioned his followers to announce as well? You may remember, it's been some time when we began this series, that for something to qualify as news, there has to be, first of all, an announcement that something, in fact, has happened. And secondly, there has to be a larger context. That is a backstory against which we can see this particular event that is being announced. Then, thirdly, there is a, suddenly, a sudden revealing of the new future. Because of this event, everything else has changed. We don't usually think in those terms, but... If something happens, it in fact affects the future. But it also, lastly, transforms the present moment. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, announces that something has happened. God has come in the flesh. And it comes as news within a larger story. It points to a wonderful future, and it introduces a period of waiting that changes the present moment. Because we now are to wait eagerly and with expectancy. The gospel is good news. But as we saw, it seems that over the centuries, and particularly in the modern age, the the Christian gospel has become advice rather than good news. So that if you talk about the Christian faith, most people, and even many Christians, assume that you're talking about an option that you might want to take up if you feel so inclined. If you're a little depressed, maybe you want to look into the Christian faith. If things aren't going right, maybe this is something you should look into. It's seen almost as a piece of advice for some type of new spirituality, a Jesus-focused interior life, or a new way of living, a Jesus-based morality. For still others, it is simply an option on the future. Don't want to go to hell? We've got the ticket. that Jesus will get you there. None of these are totally and completely wrong. The message of Jesus and the message about Jesus 
does speak of spirituality. It does speak of morality. And it does speak of the future. But we should not miss the main point, and that, that the message of Jesus is not mere advice. It was good news. When Paul and the apostles told the people in the first century the good news, they were not inviting them to rely or to try on a new way of thinking or living that would enable them to live in a different way. Paul was telling them something had happened which had changed the world. And the world is now a different place. Jesus has come into the world. And Paul and the apostles call people to be a part of that new and different reality. So as Paul preached, he stressed that something had happened. This is the backstory that God had created the world, that God was living and his power sustained the world, and God had redeemed his people in the Exodus. And therefore, the news of Jesus comes against this backstory. We have redemption. We have this miraculous event in the Old Testament of the Exodus. And now Jesus has come to redeem his people. He has died for their sins. He has been raised from the dead. This is the good news. Well, how do we get from good news to advice? How do we get from good news to this is all about feeling better, about this interior life or spirituality or morality? I think one of the big problems is that people have assumed or embraced a different backstory. That is to say, the scriptures for them begin in Matthew chapter 1. They have nothing to do whatsoever with the Old Testament. They only look at the New Testament. And so the story goes something like this. We're all going to die. And what we need is to live after we die. We need life after death. Now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, we know that it is possible to live after death. And so, if you, in fact, believe in Jesus, then you will be raised from the dead and you will have life after death. Again, this is not completely wrong, but in many ways it is a caricature of the good news. It lacks the, the right backstory. When Paul says that Jesus was raised on the third day, according to the scripture, there's a huge backstory there. Paul wants us to understand that good news means God's plan to rescue the world. And it has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. The good news, though, has been rejected in the past and now in the present because people hold to a different backstory, a different background. In Paul's time for the Jews... They couldn't accept Jesus as the Messiah because the Messiah was supposed to be this military slash political leader who was going to deliver them from their enemies, not be killed by their enemies. Crucifixion is shameful. It means not only have you been humiliated by the Romans, but in the book of Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It's not possible that this Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. For the Gentiles, particularly the Greeks, they did not believe in the resurrection. This all sounds ridiculous. It sounds quite foolish. And so they reject the message. But as we saw, not everyone rejected the good news. Something happens when the good news is announced. It transforms, God, it, it transforms people and by God's grace it has transformed us. Yet we need to recognize that as human beings, 
unbelief is our default setting. We've seen in this series that unbelief abuses the truth. It abuses the truth through a deliberate act of suppression. Paul writes about this in Romans 1. It, if you wish, if you can imagine, unbelief grabs truth by the throat and tries to strangle it and to silence it, to twist it away from God's intended purpose. If the truth is allowed to speak naturally and clearly, we will hear the truth, but unbelief tries to silence it. And then we saw that unbelief abuses the truth through a deliberate act of exploitation. That is, it uses the truth for its own purposes, and we're still in unbelief. Unbelief abuses the truth through a deliberate act of inversion. That is, we become the the God, we become the creator rather than the creature. And things are turned upside down and inside out. And we believe a lie rather than God's own truth. We make ourselves gods rather than God himself. And lastly, unbelief abuses the truth through a deliberate act of deception, which ends up in self-deception. See, as human beings, we are very limited. But for somehow, we imagine that we are, we never say this, and perhaps we don't even, you would deny that I said, but somehow we have the sense of being infinite. So when we say about someone, you are absolutely the worst person ever, there's an assumption in that statement that I've met every person that's ever lived. Of course I haven't. I've met a few people, and within that context, I'm making a judgment. But that's what we do as human beings. And therefore, this, is, this becomes our truth. And when God's truth seeks to break in, unbelief says, no, 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 no. We know what's right. We know what is true. We believe we have the right to our own views. And though we are finite, we somehow are blinded to that fact and we do not accept the truth. As I said in the series, we should never accept unbelief as theoretical, as neutral, or merely a worldview people happen to have. And today, as we end this series, we should recognize its potential danger in our lives. In James chapter 1, he speaks of the one who doubts as being double-minded, literally in two minds. While James coined the word that he uses, the concept is quite Old Testament. The story of Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. To put it a different way, within the context of our series, believe or disbelieve. Belief or unbelief. I would argue for us as, as humans, unbelief is always there. That is to say, we cannot believe perfectly. That we can believe at all is the gift of God, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. So we are to believe, but recognize that unbelief in some ways is always present with us. And it is a real danger. And if we are not careful, we may take that first step of assumption. And before we know it, we have assimilated into the way of the world's thinking. And we have left the faith. I said earlier that uh, two people are mentioned in all three passages. That is Luke and Demas. 
But another person is mentioned as well, and that is Mark. In Colossians 4, uh, Paul says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And then in parenthesis, you have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. It is likely that Barnabas was better known than Mark, and so he's identified. This is Mark. He's, he's a cousin of somebody that you know, that is Barnabas. Mark, or John Mark, as he is known elsewhere in the New Testament, had a colorful history in the missionary enterprise. He went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. They traveled to Cyprus, but then he bailed on them. He left and returned to Jerusalem when they went on to Asia Minor. When Paul and Barnabas talked about going on their second missionary journey to sort of check on the churches that they had started, um, well, there's a problem. Let me read to you from Acts 15. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. One could make the case that Mark or John Mark was in fact responsible for the breakup of the team of Paul and Barnabas. And because of that, some people read Colossians 4 in a very suspicious way. Uh, you have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. As much as to say, you never quite know about this John Mark guy. He may come or he may not. I don't read it that way at all. Rather, there is the possibility that Mark may travel there. Paul never did. Paul never went to Colossae. He wrote this letter to them, but he had never been there. But then there is our text here in Second Timothy chapter 4. It's written near the end of Paul's life. It's written to his son in the ministry, Timothy. If you look at verse number 11, 2 Timothy 4, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. The Christian faith embraces the concepts of forgiveness, of the possibility of reconciliation, of new beginnings, of healed relationships. And we find that Mark is restored. Someone who we would argue was responsible for the breakup of the great missionary team of Paul and Barnabas, someone that Paul wanted nothing to do with, near the end of his life, he says, he is helpful to me in my ministry. Mark is restored, but Demas has abandoned Paul in the gospel because he loved this world. There can be falling away. We see this in uh, Demas. But there can also be restoration, and we see this in Mark. It is difficult to believe in today's world. And unbelief is always present with us. Doubt is always there. We waver between believing and not believing. But as God's people, we need to recognize that unbelief need not be the final word. Unbelief need not be the final word. It is there. It is a danger. We need to be aware of it. But by the grace of God, he has given us the gift of faith. And we have accepted the good news that God has sent his son into the world to redeem the world. 
Let's pray together. Our Father, there are times when we imagine that we are people of complete and perfect faith. And we are terribly troubled when we find unbelief or doubt creeping in. Living when and where we do, belief has become that much more difficult. We are tempted, like Boltman, to say people with iPhones can't possibly believe in miracles. People with laptops can't possibly believe in the supernatural. We are are people, after all, of reason rather than faith. Faith is a gift from you, and we thank you for it. May your spirit increase our faith. May we come to see the dangers of unbelief and how insidiously it creeps in with those first assumptions that what is in the past is in fact inferior and what is present is superior. And then we begin to abandon aspects of the faith. And those that remain, we adapt. And before we know it, we have left the faith. But I thank you by your grace that unbelief is not the last word. Mark was restored. Watch over us. May we not leave the faith. May we not lose hope as well. I thank you that you have kept your church through the modern period. Different aspects have gone off track. We see this throughout church history. But your church remains. And as Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. May we not lose hope. I thank you that we could gather today, that you've gathered us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And in a particular way, today, we are grateful for Lani and the birthday she celebrated for your faithfulness in her life and for her faithfulness in our lives. We also remember Mama Griarty at this time. Her faithfulness as well. What wonderful gifts to your people. And we give thanks. And now as we leave this place, we pray that your spirit and your grace would go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.